to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. We have a very special episode today. Um, Dan Koch is here to help me discuss um, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and 7. This is sort of the back-end portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. I do. I just have to say, of all the podcast titles, uh, especially in the religion sphere that I have ever come across, Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible is it's Pantheon. <laughs> it's, pan- it's it it's up there with it's up there with Talking Back Sunday, which is Taking Back Sunday's podcast, which is like, oh, just the the sheer pleasure when somebody realized they could call it that. You know, it's it's that good of a name. Thank you so much. It's um something that isn't easily mistaken with any other podcast. <laughs> Uh, you, you don't yeah, hear your it SEO very. is pretty great. <laughs> there, there are no other SEO items to compete with your title. Fantastic. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I can't wait to be canceled. Um, so, um, <laughs> you're going to literally, you could literally be canceled, but by like the peanuts corporation, <laughs> it will have nothing to do with your politics or your views on trans issues. It will just be like, Oh, literally I can't, I can't call it this anymore or the use show. this image anymore. <laughs> Like a true legal cancellation, which is not normally what we're talking about. I hope to never be the first result when someone Googles Snoopy. I hope that never happens. <laughs> yeah, that, so. that's the end. <laughs> that day is when the, the kibosh gets put down. Yeah. So, Dan, tell me a little bit about how faith plays a part in your life, and then we'll talk a little bit about what you do uh, and how we um, first began to speak. Yeah. So how faith, that's a great question. How faith plays a part in my life. Nobody ever asked me that because if you host a, you know, faith or theology podcast, everybody assumes that the answer to that question would be boring, but it might not be boring. Right. It's always interesting to hear people, um, put words to the, their central values. Right. So how it plays a part in my life, uh, these days I would probably describe it as like, uh, my Christian faith orients my my aims and my values, my deepest values, uh, and my most significant commitments and decisions, um, as well as uh, I'm sure we're going to get into this at some point here, as we because there's so much prayer in this passage. But um, my uh, direct ex- direct prayer experience with God. Um, is the center of, I guess, probably the center of my faith in, in some sense. It, it is what gave me the courage, uh, removed enough anxiety and fear for me to admit that I am a theological liberal and then just get about, go about the business of being a Christian. Um, uh, and so now I feel like I've opened up three possible pathways there that are kind of unrelated to each other. Um, but for instance, my commitment to my wife, to my son, uh, my commitments to people, uh, who are counting on me for something or other, um, 
and then also how I think, which I'm, I'm excited to get into this with the, with the Sermon on the Mount, how I think about money, how I think about um, really public persona, which is quite important. I mean, I know you're anonymous, so there's, it's a little bit different, but um, putting anything out in public uh, Sermon on the Mount is all about that. And I, I, the fun, the cool thing is I asked to do Sermon on the Mount because it is, it is sort of the centerpiece of how I think that I interact with my Christian faith. That's probably a succinct way of putting it. And that's a, like a really intelligent answer. I appreciate you uh, being so thoughtful in that. No, I'm serious. I'm, I don't, uh, it's, um, it's a question that is entirely loaded. Uh, it's a question that's very difficult to answer. Yeah. Um, and, and given that I've had people on the show who have identified as sort of any number of faith orientations, um, it's one that I feel like is important to ask because I want people to know where you're coming from. And, um, and also how we're approaching this particular text. At times, the show has kind of been a little more academic. And then at other times, because I'm not an academic when it comes to the Bible, the show has been a little more charismatic. And I think by nature of me being, um, I still hesitate when I say this phrase, a born-again Christian, because it, it, it means a lot to different people in different ways. But in that, I am sort of coming back to faith after a long lapse um, I kind of tend to approach the Bible from this charismatic, I'm so excited about this and like salvation is so real. And I, I, I've, because I've felt the Lord like move in my life in like a real way, in like a very important way. Um, so you, you though have a little more of a sort of a measured approach and you have a show called You Have Permission, which I absolutely love and I listen to it all the time, um, that brings on all kinds of biblical scholars and experts, and you approach really difficult topics um, within faith that can be um, thorny and, and difficult to discuss, and you approach it in a very intelligent and um, very thoughtful and sensitive way that I think um, opens doors rather than closes them. Um, so, uh, oh, I appreciate that. I mean, one, one big difference is I've never had a dramatic conversion experience. I was raised... Christian evangelical. I, you know, said the prayer first around four or five or six. I don't even remember how old I was. And I don't even remember if the one, the one I remember was the first time. Um, and, and so for me, the, that kind of narrative of, uh, I, I do believe conversion stories are very real and I have many friends with dramatic stories and, uh, I'm very excited to ask you about yours, but we'll save that for, when I interview you for you have permission. Um, but for me, it's just been, it's been more like a long road, you know, hopefully toward Christ and, uh, with some zigzags, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, combine that with the fact that I'm just a naturally cerebral abstract kind of a guy. Uh, but I am really excited. Like, I, I hope we do get into the more experiential element here because, um, that is, uh, harder to do. I think in a podcast medium, I think podcasts are pretty well suited for abstract discussions about ideas. Uh, you know, like imagine asking someone to like pause and pray in the middle of a podcast and okay, now pay attention to your, you know, like a guided meditation kind of a thing. <laughs> you can do that in an audio format, but that's not usually podcasts are on while people are driving, they're doing errands, they're doing dishes, they're accomplishing some task. It, there's a little bit of a, you know, medium is the message kind of a thing going on. 
You know, I heard um, another uh, podcast that I was listening to talking about finding time to pray. And one of their um, uh, suggestions for finding time to pray was in the car. And I never thought about that before. And it seems like depending on how intense your prayer is, that's a little dangerous. But it is a time I find that I'm thoughtful. And um, I don't know if you heard on my third episode um, with Ashley, Christ Lover 2000, we actually prayed a section of the rosary together. And it was uh, on audio kind of, I guess, like um, it it felt a little strange to listen back to it and be like, well, this is an intensely personal thing that the two of us are doing Hmm. and, and connecting in this way. But also it's over Zoom, so you can't really have that same spiritual unified experience as when you're praying with somebody in in person. But then I wonder how many people listened to that, they heard it, and they felt the urge to pray themselves, which um, that's like ultimately my goal with this show. I want people to read the Bible, and I want people to to find their path to to God in whatever way they've— they determine is is the right way for them, although I feel like I've found the right way for me, and I won't really— um, make any uh, bones about that. You know, I'm, I am who I am. And I've, I've obviously my, my faith has, um, evolved quite a bit in the last year. So I, I expect in five years, I'm sure I will have all kinds of different opinions about the, the things I'm saying now. Fantastic. Is, it's good because yeah. audio just never goes, you know, the podcast never go away. It'll be on oh, the Apple podcast. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I try not to think about that too much. <laughs> um, like, why yeah. did I have him on? What was I thinking? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thirty years from now, uh, what will I wish was expunged from the internet wayback machine? But let, let's get into the text because I let's. don't, I don't actually get to do. You make it sound like I do a lot of Bible stuff, but I don't actually do a lot of Bible stuff on my show. It's more theology or psychology or you know, sociology kind of stuff. So this is fun. This is a treat for me to dig into the text. And you're studying, um, you're studying to be a psychologist, right? Yes. So you will have a different, I think a a little bit of a different, um, viewpoint on this, these sorts of things. And if, um, if you need to interject on something, especially if you hear me say something, uh, during the conversation, that's like, actually that's don't hesitate to contradict me. I love to be proven wrong. So, Oh, don't worry. I, I don't, I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm no doormat. Uh, I, that's, that's never going to be my, my, uh, cross to bear. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So, um, jumping in everyone to, uh, Matthew six, giving to the needy. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, there's Jesus' catchphrase again, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is a passage that we touched on in my first episode with Jack, but because of the way that our episode was structured, we really focused more on the Beatitudes, which is, I think, fitting for the first episode of a Bible podcast. But these passages in six, and hopefully if we get there, seven, um, have a sort of a different attitude about them, and they're a little more fleshed out. They're a little more thought out. What is your first impression in rereading this passage? What does it make you think of? 
Just one second. I'm making a note for <clears throat> to ask you about in our interview. <laughs> I, okay. I'll probably do that a few times. Uh, I obviously <laughs> have thoughts, but um, it, keep it. I'll keep it saved. Um, so uh, my note that I wrote down is that uh, beware. So I'm I'm reading from the NRSV. It's slightly different, but. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And my first thought was, this is a little tricky to be a public person, a podcaster, and eventually, um, you know, probably some sort of writer, speaker, uh, you know, doing my doing some of my work as a psychologist in public, not simply with clients, which is my plan. Um, it's a little tricky. To, to do that in the public eye and to be mindful of a verse like this. Uh, what reward am I seeking? Is it, is it the, is it fame or attention download numbers? Is it, um, if it's those kinds of things, uh, then that is, I will get my reward. That is my reward. Mm. And, um, now that's not always piety, right? So, uh, you, I have piety. What's your word for practicing your, uh, righteousness, righteousness, mm-hmm. right? So, your good works, your whatever. Um, not everything that I do, certainly not everything, not every episode is an example of me being righteous, uh, you know, or <laughs> displaying righteousness. Uh, that would itself be a, a prideful thing to believe. But to the extent that I'm talking about faith all the time, and uh, you know, when prayer comes up, talking about prayer experiences, talking about like taking my family to church, whatever it is, uh, that it's tricky. Like this is something I have a good buddy who encouraged me not to do a podcast for years. And this was kind of his argument was like, if you, if you're, he said, if you're going to make one, just make it and don't tell anybody about it. And if people happen to find it, great. Mm-hmm. And I was like, the problem is I'm asking people for their time <laughs> and like, <laughs> I'm going to just not tell anybody that, you know, you know, it, so that was my first thought is, uh, this is tricky. How do you, how do you navigate this as a public person? And my second thought right below that, which is a question for you is you're anonymous and that makes a difference. I think on this question, um, you know, you've got your moniker and you can, some of that you could still make it about the download counts and all that. But there is some difference that like, it's not accruing to your name, uh, your image, your brand, you know? There are few people in my life that know me personally and then also know that I do this show and they are fully supportive. So I've never really had anyone go, what the hell are you doing? And what's the name of this? And why, why are you doing this? Yeah. Most of them are just like, wow, that was cool. I've had a few people say, uh, okay, I mean, I'm not religious or I'm not Christian. So yeah. it doesn't really relate to me, but like, good for you. And, but it does beg the question, like, why do this at all? What, what's the purpose of doing a podcast like this? And what I always come back to is so that other people will come closer to Jesus and so so that other people will read the Bible more or at least ask their own questions of the Bible, even if it's not um, something that they necessarily believe in. Though I hope that in time that they do find something, um, some comfort or some spiritual fulfillment, um, that it fills their cup a little bit. But that's been my goal in this. Um, but it is kind of like in the internet world where everything is clicks and everything is likes and retweets. And um, 
you know, the whole point is to basically build a brand. How do you create, um, in the name of God, uh, giving your time, which is a form of charity, although I don't yeah. really think that it's charitable for me to do this podcast. <laughs> um, how do you do that without making it seem as though you're um, trying to garner some sort of fame? You know, it's funny. I used to be able to say, like, this is my ministry. Like, this is what I am doing with my time and energy. Uh, and especially when we weren't like at a church or if if we had a month or a quarter where, you know, money was tied and we didn't want to, you know, I was like, well, I'm giving my time. Uh, but then like the Patreon hits a certain point. <laughs> and like you do the math on how much, like I started actually making money from it and uh, not as much money as my day job, but like more money than some people make hourly. And, and so like, I had to be like, okay, well got to scratch that off the, <laughs> the list of reasons. <laughs> like, no, now it is also a job and I need to still give back in other ways because, uh, I'm actually being paid for this. Um, there is something uh, I want to talk about this. They have received their reward business here. I, I love this because I think that I perceive some deep like black humor, almost sarcasm in this. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's a shitty reward. <laughs> they saw you. They saw you on the street corner praying. So guess what? You're seen now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> like you got your reward, which was like, oh, someone thought you were right, you know, or or whatever it is, or uh, the type of person uh, to to skip down to. Um, oh no, this is yeah, this is almsgiving. So, um, you know, uh, don't. Is this somewhere else in the Sermon on the Mount? Is it in the Luke version where it's like dropping your your uh, offering in the plate loudly as opposed to the woman who gave her half penny. You know what I'm I talking about? I believe so. Yeah. But yeah. I can't, I can't pull up. That. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a riff on this same theme somewhere else in Jesus's teachings. And the idea is like, okay, so you're the kind of person who gets up there. Um, let's, let's make it modern. Uh, and they do a big announcement in front of the church that you and your family or your organization have like, donated a half a million dollars to this thing and everybody applauds you and claps for you. So you got applause from the type of people who think that's a good thing to do. So like, now this might be a little bit of my, uh, snob snobbishness coming out here, but like if I were, uh, in the crowd on that Sunday morning or whatever, I would be like, why the hell are they doing this? Like this this guy is bragging about the money he gave to the church. Like, isn't this in direct contradiction to Matthew six? Uh, he wouldn't be getting, I would think less of him for doing that, not more. So the reward, and of course this is assuming that I have it, that I represent like the good audience member or something, but I just mean the reward is even kind of discounted by the type of people who even think that's good. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a conversation to be had about ultra public, um, uh, pastors and uh, people who are like social media influencers for God um, that yeah. we could probably will we'll hit, I think, a little bit more in the section about laying up your treasures in heaven yeah. as opposed to here on earth. Because I heard a um, every week I hear something new about a televangelist or someone who who leads a mega church or something like that. And it's just like, well, here's how they fell or here's what they're doing yeah. now. And it's like the whole thing just makes me grab my head. It's like, 
I don't necessarily believe in a division of um, that, you know, one form of the church is doing the right kind of churching and one form of the church is doing good, the, the, yeah. the lower form of churching or whatever. I, I genuinely think that in all levels be and in all sort of practices and denominations, there are good and bad iterations of the church. But uh, there are some cases that are so absolutely blatant and so absolutely greedy that it's just um, it's really frustrating. Um, but anyway, that's for uh, a section beyond where we're hitting right now. Well, um, what did I, you? Yeah, so tell me what you thought when you read uh, verses one through four. It made me think of. Um, I I brought up a couple of different books over the course of the show so far, and one of them was The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And there's a section in here called Of Works Done in Charity. And the passage was, uh, Charity does not seek itself in what it does, but it desires to do only what will honor and praise God. Charity envies no man, for it loves no personal love. Charity is not about our person, Charity is not about ourselves. It's about what could and uh, would glorify God better. Hmm. And that's, um, it's difficult though to, to put that into practice. It's difficult to see that as like, um, as something that we can, oh, I'm, I'm giving this guy that's on the exit ramp of the highway uh, $5 to glorify God. Like, what is that? How does that glorify God exactly? Um it's, this is okay. So you mentioned that I might bring some psychology into it. I, here's my first uh, chance to do this. I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, that um, here's maybe one of the problems. The reason that people don't, that I don't anyway, engage in acts of charity that I might otherwise engage in that are that align with my values is that I don't get any kind of uh, experiential reward, not, not, not reward in the sense of, uh, that's the wrong word because it's, I'm, I'm mixing it up with what Jesus is talking about. Um, just, a I don't get any sort of reaction. I don't, I don't have an experience, right? So let's say that I determine that the best bang for my, you know, giving bucks is like malaria tents or something. And I, this is the best way to spend a thousand dollars and save, you know, maybe 40 lives or whatever the number is, right? Well, cool. Um, and I think that that's a good thing to do. And you, and it's good to do research and figure out the best way, you know, what, what our giving can accomplish. Uh, but how will that sear into my memory and form me to make future good decisions? Normally this happens through incentives of some kind. Uh, and a, a, a good example of an incentive that is not selfish, but that is very experiential would be like spending time with my son who's nine months old. Mm. So I say, you know what? I'm not going to keep watching this movie. I heard him wake up. I'm going to go play with him for 45 minutes so my wife can get some shit done. Hmm. Well, when I, that's the right thing to do, first of all, in, in my marriage, of course. <laughs> but then also I get the. I then get the joy of playing with my son. He is a little wonder. He's like a little, uh, I called him in an episode, like he's like a, a portable drugs dispenser. He just <laughs> makes me happy. Like he, in my dopamine and serotonin increase when I play with him. Right. So I did the right thing, but I also had that, um, I had that uh, incentive, that reward. I got a reward, and it's a completely healthy reward. It's nothing, nothing uh, bad about it. When I give 
to a charitable organization who I know can provide malaria tents and I don't have any way of providing malaria tents. I don't get that. Mm. And so there's some, it's, it's almost like a, it's a, it's a thing that maybe some, uh, social scientists could figure out like how to engineer this kind of a relationship. Maybe when wearable camera technology is very cheap, you know, I don't know, but like there's something there, um, and, and there's something actually really good about being willing to do those things that aren't naturally reinforcing the way that like caring for a loved one is even wiping an old person's butt or whatever. You're still seeing their eyes. You're still like human to human and you might have to get over your disgust, but there's still a human to human warmth. You get reinforced and some of this stuff in the modern world where we are so disconnected and the most good we can do often is disconnected good mm. where someone else is an expert at doing that good. And they just need money. They don't need you to show up with your shovel. They just want you to pay them to do the thing. Uh, it's a real, I don't know, I guess I'm getting in the weeds here, but I think that that's really interesting. It is. And, and, um, to your, uh, comment about like taking care of your son, like taking care of your child, that I think from a religious perspective, does not just give you this uh, chemical reward of like, oh, you know, my I, I so love this child that I brought into the world that it like makes me feel good to care for him. But it glorifies God in that you are raising a son who's going to be uh, who's going to be happier, who's going to be mm-hmm. more well adjusted, who may yeah. see somebody in their lives that has faith, that has a, a belief and go, maybe the way that he treated me, maybe the goodness that he showed me is a, a portion or a part of this belief that he has. And maybe I need to examine those beliefs myself. So like right. doing good for people in a personal level obviously does have that kind of reward. And I think it does probably have its reward to God in heaven too. But it is, um, it's, it's true that um, these sort of like mail-in charities and, and the, you know, how many uh, fundraisers we see online on Twitter, on, on Instagram right. every day, here's the Venmo, send it to this person. They're, they're houseless right now or they're between, um, they're between places and they're having trouble finding food and things like that. You do kind of go, well, I don't really know what's happening to this, but I have to believe then that this is going to do some good to someone somewhere. Right. Um, and then try not to be um, arrogant about it, which is difficult as human beings because we love glory. We love pride. Right. And I think that pro- probably the Christ like approach to almsgiving, um, especially for people who are pretty well established, they do have they do have a, a, a decent amount that they can give uh, and they are thinking about how to do it best. Right. Um, there can be a temptation to become your own little God and, and figure out, figure that, you know, how to do it. And that, and that there's no element of, uh, of, I don't know, I'm just, I'm going to trust that this is good. And so there's there, I think that a Christ-like approach would have some balance there between researched stuff and also acts of faith and not, and not sticking entirely to what I can sort of determine rationally would be the best use of these funds or whatever. And so to give to someone's GoFundMe or whatever is a, is a bit of a step of faith, uh, and discern that and, and balance it out with whatever. But I think there's something there. And ultimately, um, 
even if we can't figure out how to, you know, how to be selfless in giving, we have to continue to do it. And that's the call here. Um, this is uh, another uh, book. I'm, I pulled a couple of quotes in this section because it's one yeah. that's talked about extensively in in Christian uh, writing. But in um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, the section on Christian behavior, he says, some people nowadays say that charity ought to be unnecessary and that instead of giving to the poor, we ought to, instead of giving to the poor, we ought to be producing a society in which uh, there were no poor people to give to. They may be quite right in saying that we ought to produce that kind of society, but if anyone thinks that as a consequence you can stop giving in the meantime, then he has parted company with all Christian morality. So, Okay, this is, I'm 100%, and this is exactly the problem for us on the left. This is the temptation on the left. And, and the social science, by the way, bears this out again and again, study after study after study. Conservative people give more money and time to charitable causes. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I do think that they're also voting poorly, right? Like (laughs) on these issues. And that's why I tend to vote liberally, but it does not get me off the hook. My vote is not enough, right? It's like you have to do both. And I think there's a real question of a formation on the religious left that we have to ask ourselves, why are we not forming? Like if we are so, if we if we're right, and I think that we are, that we should be voting for these social programs that do provide more of a safety net, that do whatever, uh, just redistribute uh, resources and opportunity, I think that's good. How is it that we are our character is formed worse than our conservative <laughs> counterparts? So somewhere along the way, we think that that advocating for social change is the work. Um, and my my friend, the researcher at UW, Jim Wellman, uh, he has done a ton of research around liberal and, and evangelical churches. And he found in the Pacific Northwest, uh, where I live, he did a big peer-reviewed study that turned into a book. And he said the, the, the mainline liberal churches, they did a lot of work with the homeless uh, and occasionally like a women's shelter kind of a thing. Um, and that was about it. And he said the evangelical churches had six to ten. Uh, ministries for the poor and the hungry and and whatever, uh, and they just outperformed. Uh, and so there's there's something there to look at. And I I mean I don't want to stray too far into politics, but there is this kind of stereotype of like the smug leftist, like. But you you, you know uh, typically people are like conservatives don't understand or this my philosophy is just too high minded or whatever. It's like reading yeah. reading Marx isn't doing charity. Okay, <laughs> learning about socialism yes. isn't doing charity. Uh, right. You have to give of yourself to other people, and if you're not doing that, then you're not following what Jesus says to do. And and if you say, okay, I don't care, I don't believe in Jesus, then that's your problem and that's something that you can deal with. But uh, don't ever approach these these uh, things and saying, well, I just want everyone to be equal. I want this society. Well, then do it. You know, make that change. This is a perfect bridge to uh, something that I want to talk about in the next three verses. Can I, can I read them? Yes, absolutely. Please do. Okay, so here's verses five through or five through eight. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Attention, podcasters. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
when you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask them. Uh, and I, I just, I had a note here. The, the empty phrases thing, you know, I'm a, I'm a very verbal person. I, I think I have quite a big vocabulary. I'm well-spoken. I'm a good verbal communicator. I have 37 years of verbal processing practice behind me. Uh, and this verse, verse seven of do not heap up empty phrases, they think they'll be heard. That keeps me grounded as a relatively high IQ'd snobby leftist intellectual <laughs> that like, a regular person practicing their straightforward faith, uh, a rural farmer in any society, right? Like is closer to what Jesus is saying than any, you know, great three minutes I can roll off in an episode, you know, impressing with my, with my wiles, uh, which are not always <laughs> prayers, of course, but like there, there's something there, right. About, um, it, 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 it keeps me valuing the experience of everyday believers. The phrase heap up empty phrases too, is one that is kind of challenging, right? Because to me, I think it reads like, well, this is where the high church is coming from. This is where Anglicans and Catholics and things like that are coming from. We've got our prayers already. Don't bother with, you don't need to, to make them new. You don't need to change yeah. the prayers. The prayers are already here, so let's just do these prayers. But I don't think that necessarily it means that you can't pray of you know with your heart and that you can't speak. And this is where I think I defend charismatics and evangelicals a little bit more because I do think that connection with God is an intensely emotional thing and it's something that you can really, really feel uh, if you allow yourself to. But at times it can come off as kind of... Um, as kind of empty. So you just have to be careful with the way that you're phrasing your prayers, with the way that you're bringing your concerns or your hopes or your thanksgiving to the Lord. Um, just don't be, um, you know, don't be a dick about it, I guess is the best way to put it. I'm not really <laughs> sure how else to word that. Well, aren't there different kinds of prayer though? I mean, like, so I experience, uh, what, for me, one of the most uh, I guess effective, whatever it works the most often is centering prayer, silent centering prayer with like the simplest phrase or whatever, even, even going to just full, full, no language and just trying to like, uh, open myself up for God to, to reach me. Mm. Um, but then there's also, uh, there art and poetry and beauty can be a kind of prayer. And I, I find that in some of the more high church stuff often that like, oh my gosh, this language has worked for people for 300 years and is just like, it's like dialed in, in English. <laughs> it, it rolls off the, you know what I mean? Like, um, and that is a different kind of prayer. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? I, as someone again, who I feel like I, I, um, I have an un I had an unconventional path to where I'm at now. I tend to 
pray more openly and pray more freely, although I do pray the Lord's Prayer every day. I've been saying the sinner's, uh, the sinner's prayer over again, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, yeah. And uh, I've been saying that sort of thing a little bit more and trying to do repeated phrases because I feel like that, from a meditation standpoint, really helps you open your ears and listen better and... Um, you know, praying the rosary and things like that and repeating what you're, um, repeating what you're saying, not just driving the point home, but it is to sort of like help your soul open up and let you connect. But then there are times in certain days where I'm so wrapped up in my head. I have so many feelings and I have so many thoughts and I, I'm, I'm worried about the, the, the soul of a friend that's passed away, or I'm worried about a friend of mine who's, who's been exposed to COVID-19. I'm worried about, um, you know, my, my, um, my friend who's, who's, you know, bankrupted and, and, and losing their house or whatever, you know, it's, um, you, sometimes you have to be intercessory. Sometimes you have to lift, lift up whatever words you have to say and, and do it. Um, but it is, I, I think you're right. It's different kinds of prayer. And I don't know that one is better than the other inherently, although to be routine in the way that I think a lot of high church, um, routine goes is helpful in keeping you on book. Um, it's not wavering back and forth so much. It's just, okay, in the morning I read from, from the Psalms and in the evening I'm reading right now, I'm reading, uh, Amos and, uh, Matthew, I believe Luke. Hmm. Um, I'm going through the book of, <laughs> the book of common prayer with a few people on the, nice. on the version app, which is, it's a two year long prayer plan that I'm not sure if we're all going to complete or not, but it's, um, it's definitely ambitious and, and cool. I would love to have their data. Like I bet, it, <laughs> I, bet I bet completion rates are just abysmal on everything that they have. I'm there. certain of it because I yeah. even drop out from, from time to time. I'm, I'm in this one prayer plan with a friend who it, it's like the whole thing has this very financial, like self-help, like, uh, uh, attitude to it. And it's just this prosperity gospel bullshit that I just, I just hate it so much. But again, we can talk about that when we lay our treasures up in heaven rather than here. Uh, Yeah. 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 We can save that for that. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to blow past, um, whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. I mean, there is something that is like so foundational to me in the way that I, think about Jesus's whole kind of program, uh, this, this idea that like, um, and actually to, to bring back up Jim Wellman's research with evangelicals. And then he recently did a whole book on mega churches as well, which were largely evangelical. And he said, you know, uh, another thing he's like, the research already shows that these people do more than, than, you know, their liberal counterparts. But he said, there's also an additional amount of stuff that they do that they don't tell people about mm-hmm. that. Like it took in-depth interviews to uncover that actually every Friday, this guy and these five friends of his are going and repainting old people's houses for them. Like, and that, uh, that wouldn't have even showed up in the kind of survey data that, other people have found that like you have to go deeper to this qualitative research to even uncover more of it. And like that kind of work right there is like, that is gospel work to me. That is like the dead center of it is, uh, people don't know I'm doing this. Um, it is a thing that I do 
because it is the right thing to do, I think it's okay to enjoy it. I think it's actually natural to enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy it, then actually there's probably something weird with you. <laughs> um, and you should get an assessment. Look into thine own heart. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and, and, and not to get too far afield from Jesus, but like I'm an Aristotelian in the sense that I think that an appropriate emotional reaction ought to flow from a good work, that that is actually a good sign. That's a sign that things are working as they should be working for you, that your, that your soul is healthy in the way your body could be healthy. Right. Um, so, but anyway, I just thought that was interesting of like there, this is like, it's so antithetical to flashy American culture. And it is like the heart of the Christian life is to just do stuff on the sly yeah. for people, you know? And again, not for clout. We're not talking, we, no. we were just talking about giving, you know, almsgiving and things like that. I mean, it's, you're not doing that for, you're not praying so that people will hear you pray. You're not, you're not praying for retweets, although some people do. Um, I jump between translations from time to time and the um, language in the voice in this particular passage in uh, Matthew 6, starting at 7, says, And when you pray, do not go on and on excessively and strangely like the outsiders. They think their verbosity will help, uh, will let them be heard by their deities. They're filling in that phrase is nowhere in um, any more reliable translations that I've seen. But he says, do yeah. not be like them. Your prayers need not be labored or lengthy or grandiose for your father knows what you need before you ever ask him. I think I jumped into the next section there that we hadn't read yet, but <laughs> no, no, that's uh, where I ended too. Oh, okay. Um, but the, the, um, the saying we, they don't have to, you don't have to be praying for hours and hours and hours. And hours. that's helpful because most of us don't have time. We don't lead a monastic life. We don't really have time to, okay, here's my two hours in the morning. I wake up at four and here's my two hours in the morning when I pray. And then when I get home from work at about seven, I, uh, I eat a little dinner. And then from eight till 10, I also pray for two <laughs> pray. more hours. Nobody, <laughs> nobody does that. Okay? Right, right, and and yeah. if you do good on you and like, congratulations, I'm sure you feel way better every day than I do. But I, I, I would say <laughs> if you do, there is some chance that you suffer from scrupulosity and actually are, have an anxiety disorder, but yeah. <laughs> but if that helps you cope, then, you know, it's better than some alternatives, I suppose. Yes, I suppose that could but, be true. Um, yeah. But the most, the most, um, direct emotional, um, feelings that I've had while I've prayed has always been when I'm praying alone. I, I tend to mm -hmm. be self-conscious when I'm praying around other people. Yeah. I tend to be kind of, um, kind of like, you know, quieter and a little more, um, a little more reserved. But when I'm, I'm praying alone, I can say what I really feel and say it, uh, however I want to say it, which, you know, obviously some people probably have feelings about that because you, according to the next, uh, according to the next section here, we see this is how we're supposed to pray. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do the, let's do the Lord's prayer. All right. In, um, six, Matthew six, verse nine, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also, uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This phrasing always trips me up because it's not yeah. how I learned the prayer itself. No, yeah, me either. Yeah. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
And uh, depending on the the version that you have, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right. Um, I think that actually might just be in Luke or something that that, that gets added. Oh, in, okay. In the Sermon on the Plain, which is the Luke version of the Sermon on the Mount. There's something to be discussed there too, but I think that that's for another episode. <laughs> that's for a new test. That's probably for a New Testament scholar, honestly. Like yeah, a, I don't. A continuity uh, episode would be really fun. Like, here's all the ways yeah. that the Bible contradicts itself. <laughs> there, I, if I could, if I could briefly, there's an early episode of You Have Permission with Dale Martin, who was the New Testament professor uh, at Yale for a couple decades, and it's about the four Jesuses presented in the four Gospels. Interesting. And so it's some it's something like that in the title. It's it's in the first fifteen or twenty episodes of of the show. So a couple of years ago, I think I said this earlier, but listen to you have permission, everyone. Please, you, you said it. It's it's <laughs> extremely good, and, and it will it. help you navigate all kinds of things, and and it, you'll learn a lot too. So what I love here is in Matthew. Then these next two verses: for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I love that that throws a spoke in the kind of neat and tidy, uh, standard, um, reform tinged, you know, uh, you confess Jesus with your mouth, you know, you get the forgiveness because you've said the sinner's prayer and you get your ticket, your name's written in the book of life and you're good to go. That that kind of simplified gospel presentation, air, big air quotes, mm-hmm. uh, Jesus is like, Really, there's a lot of parts in the Gospels that really kind of poke holes in the in the sort of not not the simplicity of it, because it is simple in that sense. And 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 I do believe that. Well, I'm a universalist, so I believe you're saved anyway. But I, I mean, I do believe that simply doing that does bring you into contact with God. Uh, but there's a there's an additional kind of claim that usually gets paired with that, which is like this is the only thing anyone needs to know about their salvation, such that we can, in practice, pretty much avoid the gospels once we understand that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, mm-hmm. and then we don't really need to read them or preach on them. Which, by the way, I love you saying that a Bible podcast should start with the Sermon on the Mount. I actually don't think that is how most Bible podcasts would start, <laughs> and I think that's very cool. Um, so there is a conditional here, at least in this passage, of like if you are not forgiving people then you're not being forgiven. Uh, and I don't, well, I don't, what do you think about those? What do you think about that conditional? The notion that um, forgiveness is what the Lord does for us so that we should also be forgiving to other people seems like a pretty simple concept, but it's one that people I think struggle with and struggle with and struggle with. And holding a grudge is almost like the eternal human condition. It's just like, I hate that guy. I yeah. hate these people. I hate, we have, we hold so much hate in our hearts because of ways that we were raised or because of things that we learned when we were growing up or um, because of uh, a perceived wrongdoing or, or, or things that have happened to us that have turned us against groups of people or people, uh, individuals. Um, their trespasses, so to speak, are often things that we are inventing in our heads or at least expanding on in our heads. And and if we really stop to think about it, what we're fixating on probably isn't all that important. And ultimately it doesn't matter how important it is because you need to forgive people. Um, This is the turning the other cheek. I mean, it's, it's quintessential to believing in Christ and following Christ's teaching. 
um, not to be judgmental um, and to forgive. Can we talk about forgiveness a little bit? Because I think that it's gotten I I don't want to say a bad rap. I think that um, a real a real problem happened, especially in dominant culture, sort of evangelical churches where um, and I would actually call it religious abuse where uh, people are have been many times uh, abuse survivors have been pressured to forgive their abusers sort of willy nilly. Uh, not because that's what God would want of them, but because that gets the wheels back greased for the system to go back to the way that it normally goes. And it gets rid of everybody's anxiety and cognitive dissonance and harms the survivor of the abuse further in the process. And then I think about like in response to that, forgiveness has gotten kind of an asterisk put uh, behind it, especially in more liberal, like socially liberal circles of like, well, Hey, what is questioning what the value of forgiveness really is? Uh, is forgiveness just letting the powerful stay powerful? Is it like saying that what you did doesn't matter because what you did does matter? Um, and I, I think sometimes that goes too far and to where we actually are losing out on, the benefit for ourselves of forgiving other people and being able to move on with our lives. Um, you are a member of a community where that stuff has a lot more, whether for you or your, uh, whatever community member mates, I don't know what the term, (laughs) you know, fellow, fellow sexual minorities, et cetera, where, you know, there is such a higher incidence of this kind of, of trauma and abuse and harm, and so higher stakes for these conversations around forgiveness than myself as a relatively affluent straight white man. Um, so I'm wondering what you think, if you've perceived that, am I picking up on something you're not picking up on? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. So I, there's a few it's things a problem I, think, I have. <laughs> I think, um, first and foremost, I have a really hard time identifying with the trans community at large or identifying with the LGBTQ community. And I've said this before on the, on the podcast, I really kind of hate that acronym, but we do all kind of have something in common. Uh, and, and oftentimes we are the first to take each other down, uh, because of Mm. perceived slights and because of, uh, uh, you can't say that, or you shouldn't have said this that way, or, um, we love to cancel each other. Trans people do, queer people do, so on and so forth. So forgiveness isn't really built in <laughs> essentially to our our mindset, I don't think, in the 21st century. In 2020, we're not looking to forgive people for things that they've done wrong. But in that, forgiveness, if you look in other places in the Bible, forgiveness isn't just always freely given. It's given because of repentance. If you you can be forgiven by God for your sins because of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made, but that's because you repent, because you confess your sins, not because God just says, okay, fine. So when you're in this state of uh, eternal um, forgiveness, if you're just always forgiving and forgiving, it becomes this kind of open door for moral permissiveness and um, moral relativism, which is a tricky territory. It's very thorny, like rocky ground that we're standing on because I don't know that there is an absolute right and a wrong as how to be a human being in this world. And I'm not even sure that the Bible is the place that we need to always be looking for what makes right and wrong because there are a lot of screw-ups in this book. There's a lot of people who, <laughs> yes. who did horrible, <laughs> awful things to each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, there's, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, the language in the passage is clear, but the concept itself is not clear at all. So you're, so you want to draw a distinction between, uh, sort of this more, um, Oh, you should forgive the person who traumatized you or caused you harm, whatever, uh, in the abstract versus you should forgive them if they have come and asked for forgiveness. That's, I think, ultimately how I stand on things, especially when it comes yeah. to like feeling persecuted or feeling, and I don't, honestly, on a day-to-day basis, my being trans doesn't have a whole hell of a lot to do with how I operate, but it does happen from time to time that somebody will lash out at me or say something that I find to be out of line. And from my stance, I'm absolutely open to forgiving people. I hate holding grudges. They're exhausting to hold, but I won't forgive somebody for something that they've done wrong to me unless they actually say, hey, I'm sorry that I did that. I shouldn't have done it. Um, so what's the difference then in your experience of, so when you say I won't forgive them, do you mean you won't say the words I forgive you? Or do you mean that it, your internal state, your attitude toward them uh, actually shifts and you then you internally forgive them in a way you wouldn't have until they asked forgiveness? I think if they're asking for forgiveness, they're looking for a response from me in some sure. way to assuage their own kind of guilt. Inside of myself, the, the, the mode is always to turn the other cheek, right? I'm not going mm-hmm. to be angry at you. I'm not going to lash out at you again. But forgiveness does feel like something, at least to me, that should be earned, And there's probably a million Bible verses contradicting what I'm saying right now. But as a person, (laughs) as a flawed human being, this is where I see it. Now, I don't know if God necessarily sees it that way, although there are some passages supporting that. You do have to be repentant and that you do have to confess. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's the bit um, about—I don't know if it's in this chapter. I don't think it's in chapter 6. But if you are at the temple to make your sacrifice and you remember— that you had something against your brother, leave the temple, don't make your sacrifice, leave church, basically, go and make it right with the person, right? And be reconciled with your brother, I think is the, the language. And reconciliation uh, is, a, is a more robust term than sometimes I think forgiveness can be purely abstract in English, right? Like it's, a, it's completely an internal mental slash emotional state, but reconciliation usually is not that mm-hmm. it's, there has been some form of re- reciprocity, like kind of the way that you're talking about. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there's that, we could put that part in the same sermon, uh, to, to kind of flesh it out a little bit. And, the the call is, um, I feel like as, as it's written in this passage is almost like to be um, to be like athletes on, on the, like, you know, you knocked the basketball player, knocked the opponent over and he picks them up and they slap each other on the ass and then they get going again. (laughs) That's kind of what's being called for here. It's not like you are called to, um, forgive the sins of someone else. Only Jesus can do that. Or I think in some cases the apostles were called to do that as well. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, gosh, it's fascinating. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I like that um, analogy of like, yeah, you pick each other up, you, you know, you say, Hey, cool. Are we cool? You know, and you, and you go on with your, with your work, mm-hmm. right. Or your day. Um, yeah, there are so, so many interesting things in the last few minutes here. Um, I, I think it's interesting to put the debtors in conversation with the trespasses. So that's, those are the words that I've got. It sounds like we both in both, uh, ESV and NRSV, we have that. Mm -hmm. So within the Lord's prayer, it's debtors. And then in the coda, the next two things, it's trespasses. 
Um, and one thing to bring in here, I think, is David Bentley Hart, the theologian, uh, Eastern Orthodox theologian, American guy. Um, in his New Testament translation, which came out I don't know, a couple of years ago, he actually talked a lot about how it really is debtors, like it's debts, like the language in Matthew is financial language. And so um, one thing that he says the American church often does is we want to swap that out for trespasses or we want to spiritualize debts. And he's like the original hearers of this sermon would have understood this to be about money. And now, so what's interesting here is there's no, uh, con- the conditional is not as strong on the debts. And also forgiving debts, uh, would you say that that also requires someone to sort of like file bankruptcy with you, so <laughs> to speak, and like ask for the debt to be forgiven? Is it the kind of thing that you do without anybody asking? Because because at another point, uh, I guess it's probably in chapter five, the give without Expecting in return mm-hmm. is around the turn your turn the other cheek section, right? And using that financial language, no, I, I don't feel like it, it requires any kind of um, atonement or whatever. It doesn't require any kind of um, making up for. You're right. basically just giving the debt away. You're saying, okay, that's it. Which is why I think I struggle with the, the, and David Bentley Hart is a genius. I I don't really, I'm not trying to contradict what he's saying here, but that's why I personally struggle when language like that is used in the Bible, because it's a little foreign to me. And I feel like in ways it kind of cheapens or deadens the, the, um, the action that is called here, Mm. uh, called for here. So, okay. Let me throw something else out that I've found interesting, and actually, I, you're you're reminding me to think about this more now, which I'm grateful for because it is really interesting, and I had never heard it said before. But I have this really cool book called "The Sermon on the Mount According to Vedanta," and it was written in like the 50s or 60s by this uh, Vedanta is a form of Hinduism, I believe. Hmm. That's I should not get that wrong, but I am maybe. Anyway, what this guy, so he's like a, whatever, a Hindu Vedanta leader and author and really loves Jesus and really loves uh, the gospels and the Sermon on the Mount. And he wrote a whole book, just like, here's how I see this as I read it from my perspective. And one of his kind of main arguments is that um, it's useful to read these demanding sections of the Sermon on the Mount less as if they are given to lay people and more as a sermon given to Jesus's disciples who are basically training to become monks and nuns. And if you look at it with that lens, stuff like forgiving all debts, no matter what, giving without return, uh, you know, giving without any in return, being a kind of like it is similar to people who take up the the monkhood or nunhood in all religion, right? These sort of religious ascetics who don't own anything. All monks and nuns everywhere take these vows of poverty, uh, sometimes chastity, usually chastity, um, usually obedience of some sort to their order or their superiors, and they don't own anything. Mm-hmm. And they and so. I, in some sense, that's like a way to get me off the hook when I read it. And I, 
I'm oh, a little uncomfortable. <laughs> he wasn't talking right. about me. He was talking, he wasn't about, talking about me. <laughs> but in another sense, it sort of does make sense. And and the Thomas Akempis book, Imitation of Christ, which you referenced earlier, that book is written to novice monks, right? Like he, when he's writing that, he is in charge of the young monks who are coming into the monastery. And that's who he writes the book for. Of course, so much of it applies that that book has ended up being the next most popular Christian book after the Bible over the centuries, because we lay people find stuff in it that resonates with the Sermon on the Mount and other aspects. I'm talking a lot, but what do you think about this idea of the prism of, or the lens of some of this stuff is like monastic training kind of stuff. I think if our call is to like, um, bring ourselves to walk as Jesus walked and to, to be, um, to be closer to him, then even if it is just this, um, sermon for these particular people in this particular time, it should be something that we listen to and are called to do as Christians now. Um, because in, in a lot of ways, I feel like, uh, no Christian should ever claim that like Christianity is being, um, infringed upon in American society. It's like we're a dominant uh, Christian by appearances kind of society. But the church itself is uh, really struggling right now. I feel like it's having trouble finding an identity, and now it's so fractured in different ways. And I talked about the um, the, the letters in uh, Revelation 1 through 3 on an episode past um, and, and how the church needs to deal with that. But I think that like we should be trying to be monks and nuns, right? If if we are believers, if we are trying to be closer to God and trying to be like Jesus, then I guess it doesn't matter who this was originally intended for. This is how we should follow it. But in another way, it goes, oh, well, that's, yeah, it kind of takes you off the hook a little bit. But then it, then doesn't that throw the whole question of the Lord's Prayer into into question too? It's like, well, that's just a prayer for monks and nuns. That's not that's not the way that lay people pray. That's a great question. That that would be a very good uh, uh, challenge to, or sort of, I would love to get uh, Swami, whatever his name is, his idea, but I'm pretty sure he died a while ago. Um, but that would be an interesting, yeah, back and forth with someone who held that view that this is, a lot of these are monastic directions. Yeah, I do think that the Lord's Prayer um, is obviously uh, it's so it's so perfect for the average believer um, that it is pretty it, it it strains credulity to think that Jesus did not intend it for sort of anybody listening to be able to pray. Yeah, I don't know. So maybe you might think that some you might find it plausible that some of the stuff Jesus is saying really does make a lot more sense in a, you know, you are my, like closer to the, like the, the, uh, uh, the directions when he sends them out, you know, bring only one tunic, like, mm-hmm. the, like kind of like you guys really are kind of doing a thing here. You're on a specific team. Uh, and that's a little different. Um, it's hard. Jesus is, Jesus is a hard ass, man. <laughs> Let the dead don't bury your father, you know, like, don't worry about this storm. We're just in a boat. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Like it'll, right. it'll be okay. <laughs> Why would you guys have worried? Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, um, the Dale Martin stuff, 
uh, is so interesting because he himself is a gay man. And one of the things that he did a lot in his scholarship of, of the gospels and, and Paul, actually he's a, I think he focused more on Paul, but in his new Testament scholarship is, and especially he's writing in like the eighties and the nineties, like the height of the like Reagan, uh, and the reaction to Chris, to Clinton, this like kind of, um, nuclear family, almost, almost, uh, worship on the right. Uh, he really uses the text to poke so many holes in sort of the normative and, uh, I don't know, like exalted view of the nuclear, like the 50s style nuclear family, um, which I think you would enjoy. Uh, you should check out his book, Sex and the Single Savior, which is a series of essays, basically, like shorter, mostly unconnected um, bits about that, but he makes a pretty compelling case that like Jesus was not a family man, uh, (laughs) by any stretch. And so, you know, we might have reasons for keeping families intact. And I think we do, I think we have very good sort of scientific reasons for doing that, but let's not kid ourselves that we're just quoting Jesus when we're promoting the family. Like we're, we're kind of not actually, we're, we're, uh, we're actually kind of sidelining all the times that Jesus pushes very hard against sort of standard familial norms. Absolutely. And the way that um, sex is discussed in the Bible is usually like, this is a, a, it's almost like it's like a necessary evil or something like, obviously lust is another issue and, and those sorts of things as sin are another issue. But um, yeah, it doesn't really, they don't talk about uh, this is how we make a perfect family in the eyes of, in the eyes of Jesus yeah. that just doesn't exist. Yeah. And of course the whole like male head of the household moneymaker thing is just like not, was not true in the it's, ancient world. It's Paul. Okay. It starts, no, it starts in like Victorian England, basically. <laughs> it's a, it's a reading of Paul that becomes popular in the 19th century in England. It's basically post-industrial revolution uh, that in the ancient Near East, like most families ran their business together, whether it was a farm or a store or they dyed garments or whatever it is. Like these were family run operations by husband and wife. Uh, And so anyway, that (laughs) stuff all crumbles on closer (laughs) inspection. Interesting. Um, As I told you, we would not get through. We would not get to. Chapter seven, nor will we even get through chapter six. Not even close. Um, can we just then skip ahead to lay up treasures in heaven and discuss yeah, it? We want, I, we I have talk things about that. to say Great. about fasting, but I th- I feel like this is a do for an episode maybe about meditation as prayer because cool. fasting, I think, is, is part of the mind-body connection that helps you reach whatever spiritual level you're trying to reach, be you a Christian or otherwise. Um, but this bit really directly relates to the lay, lay up uh, treasures in heaven. This is six um, Matthew six nineteen, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also the eye of the lamp is the body or the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I wish this was in bold, 
giant writing in this book because while we all have needs, we all have uh, things that we have to do and and we can't not work in this world. Most of us do not have the pleasure of, of yeah. not having a day job. Um, what you do with that is what your calling is here. It's not that you cannot amass some kind of wealth. It's not that you can't have things, you know, like I have a, I have a record collection that's pretty big and I, I really enjoy music and I really love listening to music in a physical medium. And that to me, like it brings me fulfillment and joy, but, uh, that borders on this sort of notion of uh, serving two masters, right? Or idolatry or something like that. So how do we walk that fine line between being observant and loving God and following Jesus and then also being human beings and like having desires and, and, and wanting things in this world and wanting a relative level of comfort? Yeah. I mean, I, I almost want to separate it from work because I think work is either a necessary evil if you are in a social station where you don't have much choice what kind of work you do, uh, then it's just like a thing you have to do in order to survive and you shouldn't feel bad about that. Uh, if you are more like me and you've managed to finagle to where you enjoy your work, uh, I wouldn't want to not have work. Like I, I really like working. I woke up the other morning like thinking about my research project that I'm doing in school, you know, that will be similar to academic research that I will do as a psychologist. That's work. It's good work. It's, it's, it's meaningful work. Um, serving money is, you know, that's the real thing here. Right. Uh, and what does that mean? That's discernment for any person, you know, whether your record collection is you serving money is, is between you and God and maybe some close friends who can help you disentangle that. Um, but I, I need this passage personally. Uh, I have, I was very, very poor, very cash poor for my entire twenties. I was in a band and I made just no money. The most money I ever made when I was in my band Sherwood over an eight year period where we toured or released or were in the studio 10 months out of the year. That was like our, we really, that was our real kind of time. The most I ever made was like 23 grand. And I live with my parents. Uh, I didn't have a lot of expenses, so I, I was never destitute. And I, uh, I have a privileged background insofar as, uh, at that time, my parents owned their home and, uh, we have many, families that I knew growing up with resources that if something had happened to me, I would have had a, I had a, um, a safety net, but I didn't make any money. And, uh, since then I have been a lot more fortunate and, uh, figured out that the, the skills I learned, um, were, I could put those to use writing commercial music, which actually pays a lot better than <laughs> being in a band, uh, <laughs> as it turns out, if, if you're pretty good at it. And so that's been less of a concern. And I feel like as, as getting my needs met has become less of a concern, as I and my wife have gone up the Maslow hierarchy in terms of caring for our, our fundamentals and stuff, I need a verse like this to keep me humble about this, to keep me honest that like, uh, okay, so we have the money to pay for our home in our shelter and our clothing and our food and all of that. Uh, but that's not like 
the stuff of real value. And the minute that that edges toward worshiping that sense of security, worshiping that sense of um, having plenty or whatever, then now we're serving mammon. We're serving wealth. We are not serving God. And uh, I guess I just kind of did a little screed there, but um, this, this passage is just so central. It's something that comes up regularly for me in terms of the very first question you asked me, which is like the role of faith in my life. Like this is one of the big ones. I I don't think it was a screed. I think it was perfectly intelligible. And I think it was one that we'd all, uh, I mean, this passage is one that we'd all do well to meditate on a little bit more often. And, um, you know, the example of the record collection is probably not the clearest one because I wasn't trying to necessarily um, say that these physical things represent a worship of money, but um, it is due to the money that I've made in my life that I've been able to, and I wasn't, sure. you know, but at that time I had less concern of, uh, when I was mostly uh, doing this, I had less concern about that. But now as a Christian, I do feel like when I have money, I do think a little more carefully about how I spend it. Am mm-hmm. I spending it for the purpose of, 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 uh, spending it? Uh, am I, am I, am I worshiping money by just going, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's pick this up too. I'll get a brand new car and I'll do this and I'll do that. Yeah. Or am I doing this because it serves a purpose here on earth? And, um, and you know, I don't know, it's an unanswerable, uh, question really how, uh, to avoid such a thing because frankly, it's, um, it's something that's, uh, money is, uh, an ever present, I don't want to say evil, but it is an ever-present issue in all of our minds. Um, the the thing where I see an obvious uh, decay in the church is where I see churches, these these mega churches, which while I do respect people who are part of them because they're communities, uh, they are where all of their families know each other from, they are where right. all of these people connect. They're also... Um, typically kind of like money pits where one person winds up getting funneled tons and tons of money. And yeah. they're um, usually like hundreds or thousands of working class people who essentially turn someone who otherwise would just be a humble servant of God into like a gajillionaire. Yeah. Into a wealthy person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I heard a sermon the other day and uh, they were talking about a cube that Joel Olstein is selling, like a little uh, a Siri thing or whatever that Joel Olstein is selling for $40 that gives you inspirational phrases at the beginning of every day. And I just go, what the hell is wrong with these people? Because I can't, I can't <laughs> not think this is the love of money. What are you selling this for? What does this provide to people? How does this enrich their lives? Yeah, if you if that's what you just want people to have, you could make an app, right? That is free. And make it free. The U version's yeah. free. They do great with that. <laughs> right. Nine hundred yeah. million people on that app. Uh, right, you- exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but you I, I have different feelings toward the U version developers than I do towards Joel Osteen, right? So and even yeah. if it is obviously a very evangelical kind of bent to to most of the um operations there, their daily yeah. um their daily uh, prayer meditation thing is often just people from these mega churches that are leading their prayers. It's um, odd because it's free. It's a free service. So like, it's not like anybody's making any money appearing on there. And some people who I greatly respect, like N.T. Wright has been on there and, and led um, devotionals there too. Like right. um, 
it's uh, it's a fascinating uh, this intersection of money and faith is a fascinating one and one that I think we could spend another two hours probably talking about that we unfortunately don't have. (laughs) I mean, I think for me, it it all comes down to discernment and wisdom here. And I think that you, I don't know where the line is and the line is at a different place for different people probably. But I think the, the simplest thing to say is like, if, if this is not factoring in to your thinking about money as a Christian, then it needs to be factored in, right? Like there are other things to factor in. Uh, And, you know, like with vinyl, for instance, you know, supporting artists, supporting record labels. Like I I bet if I asked you, okay, however many thousands of dollars you spent on vinyl. uh, And if we looked at the breakdown of where that went to, it went to artists themselves. It went to record stores, record distributors, people who make their living uh, distributing and creating musical art you wouldn't feel bad that you, you put money into those people's pockets. Like they did, it didn't go to investment bankers, right? Like, so it's, it's, it's discernment. Mm. But if you are showcasing those records so that a group of people who are super cool that wouldn't like you otherwise will like you or something like that, (laughs) right. Then that's discernment. And you have to recognize that that's what you're doing. Um, but it's yeah. Once you start getting into the interconnected global economy stuff, it's it's so hard to feel confident that you've got a bead on it. Uh, you just you got to look inward. Um, it's much. It's actually much easier to figure out if I am serving God than if supporting if like carbon offsets work. <laughs> like you know, like it's much easier to just figure out what are my motivations here and why am I doing this is way easier to answer than what are the best ways to spend a dollar on food or something like that. Oh my gosh. I mean there's people whose entire livelihoods are spent writing about that for for you know journals or something. Like I don't know. The uh, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to sort of forsake like our earthly urges and our 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 more fallen like desires as human beings. But this is the hardest one I think for most of us to really parse to um, mm. to to walk the line between um, we want to be successful, we want to be um, uh, we want to be fulfilled in this world, we do want to have good feelings and we do want to be prosperous. And some would believe that Jesus wants you to be, because you're a Christian, Jesus wants you to be prosperous, which I'm not sure that I necessarily believe, but, um, how do we, Jesus doesn't want you to, (laughs) I think that's pretty damn clear. He is not interested in you being prosperous. I think that Jesus wants to uh, that his call is to uh, go forth and spread the you know spread the word, and and many people see that as a calling to well I'm going to get so famous and I'm going to tell everybody right. I'm a Christian and then um, and then everybody's going to turn into a Christian because they heard about what I had to say about this thing, um, and uh, and obviously that's not what's being uh, called for here. Um, right, you can't serve two masters. I think that there's also a conversation to be had in parts of this about universalism. And that's something where I think you and I probably see mostly eye to eye on. Um, although I, I think that, um, this particular section isn't referring to other gods or other deities or things like that. I think it's specifically just talking about, about money. Um, gosh, I, I feel like we're probably out of time, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Um, we, we, 
golly. I knew it would happen. <laughs> Dang. I was like, there's no way we're getting through six and seven. You've never talked to me before, and I know how it goes. So, Well, I'm greatly looking forward to um, being on your show, uh, hopefully sometime yeah. in the near future. And Yeah, me too. Why don't you uh, yeah. do some plugs and, and tell everybody where they can find you? Yeah, so uh, my podcast is called You Have Permission. You can find it anywhere that you listen to podcasts um, or youhavepermissionpod.com. And uh, that's probably the only thing that really matters. I am on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Snoopy and I are friends on Twitter. It's at Dan Koch, D-A-N-K-O-C-H. And Instagram is D-A-N-C-O-K-E. It's phonetic because my actual spelling on Instagram was not available. And Instagram is mostly pictures and videos of my son who is objectively adorable. (laughs) So if you're into objectively adorable nine, 10 month olds, uh, you should follow me and occasional like jokes about indie rock or movies. I post about movies a lot too. That's really my, like my hobby is, uh, is film. So. Well, thank you again for, for joining me. It was, um, it was a really, uh, fascinating discussion. Um, even if we didn't yeah. cover all the ground that I wanted to cover, I feel like we really went in depth on the things that were really important in this section and quality, I w- not quantity. I would love to have you on again at some point if you uh, feel so inclined. Cool. This uh, poem this week is from Mary Oliver. Uh, the poem is called rice. She's yeah, she's a genius. Um, it grew in the black mud. It grew under the tiger's orange paws. Its stems thinner than candles and as straight. Its leaves like the feathers of egrets, but green, the grains cresting, wanting to burst. Oh, blood of the tiger. I don't want you just to sit down at the table. I don't want you just to eat and be content. I want you to walk out into the fields where the water is shining, the rice has risen. I want you to stand there far from the white tablecloth. I want you to fill your hands with the mud like a blessing. Thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.